Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 12. As we continue our study in the book of Exodus, the life of Moses, we're going to take a deep look at the meaning of the blood of the Lamb tonight, its significance, its origin, its importance, where it came from. On Sunday, we're going to be having our communion service at the beginning, of, as we do of every month, and seeing where it all started from tonight in Exodus chapter 12. If you guys are tuning in tonight, and perhaps this is a, a visit for you tuning in tonight, you haven't heard the last few studies, we've been studying how God called his people Israel to redeem them to himself. They were in bondage, living in Egypt, servants to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians. And the Lord was calling them to, to leave Egypt. And Pharaoh, trying in all his might, hardening and being stubborn against the Lord's command, sought to keep the Israelites from entering into the worship of the Lord. So the Lord, through Moses and Aaron, brought nine plagues so far. We witnessed we witness as Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, went out over the Nile. Aaron stuck out his rod and, and the Nile became blood. And then all the water in Egypt became blood. And then secondly, the Lord brought frogs. So many swarms of, of frogs onto the land of Egypt. So that much so that it stunk. And still Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. So then Aaron used his rod and struck the dust of the earth there in Egypt. And God turned that dust into lice. And it plagued the Egyptians. The fourth plague, the Lord brought flies. Swarms of flies which plagued the Egyptians. And then the fifth plague, the livestock of the Egyptians died. Their livelihood was taken away from them. By the sixth plague, God struck the Egyptians personally, physically on their, their bodies with boils. And then in the seventh plague, we saw hail from the heavens come down. And the Lord was redeeming his children Israel. And then the Lord brought the locusts and the locusts plagued the land. And then ninthly, the Lord brought darkness over the land so thick that it could be felt. And still Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Now this battle that Moses was having with Pharaoh, Moses simply had to submit to the Lord and let the Lord do his work. It wasn't in Moses' strength to redeem Israel. 
He was watching what God was doing. It was God's work. And now this is where we pick up in chapter 12. The Lord told Moses that a 10th plague was coming, one that God would use to strike at the heart of Pharaoh by striking the firstborn of the Egyptians. Look at now verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, if you're taking notes tonight, this is a new spiritual month now that the Lord is instituting. This month was called Abib, and later the Chaldeans called it Nisan, not like the car. But this is now happening in what our calendar is the beginning of March and the end of April. You see, there's a secular calendar, which they also have a Jewish New Year's, which takes place in September, but they also have a spiritual, a divine calendar that they follow after, and that new year begins here, Abib. And it was signifying a new start, a new life as a nation, a new birth of a nation coming out of Egypt. It's a deeper relationship, having seen the works of God, putting behind Egypt, which was symbolic of the world, and the things of the world. And this is symbolic for us. There's a lot of symbols taken from the book of Exodus. Remember, Egypt is a type of the world, a type of sin. And before we knew Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we were a slave to sin. So God, through his Redeemer, brings us out of that lifestyle and he gives us a new life. In verse 3, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house Take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. I recognize here that first there was this lamb they were supposed to take. It was going to be used for sacrifice. And it was also able to share with neighbors. They said if they, you had a small household and the lamb was enough to feed your neighbor, that was fine. I'm reminded to, to love our neighbors. And I, I see in this text even a foreshadowing of David, King David, how Nathan, the prophet, would come to him and tell him his story that there was a rich man who had all these lambs and he would throw parties every day, but his neighbor was a poorly man 
who had just this one little ewe lamb that he loved dearly. See, the Jews would know the importance of this story. They would know what it meant to take care of that Passover lamb. And Nathan told King David that the rich man took all the poor man had, that one little ewe lamb, slaughtered it for himself, fed his friends. And Nathan asked King David, King David, what do you think we should do to this rich man who stole the poor man's only lamb? King David said, this man should die. And Nathan said, King David, you are that man. You are the one who stole your servant Uriah's wife, went into her, had a child with her in adultery, and then you killed Uriah. And King David, he was weak with sin. He felt convicted and said, I've sinned against the Lord. He repented, but it cost him the life of his firstborn son. There were still consequences. God punished, but God forgave. King David was a man after God's own heart. Now this firstborn, these lambs, they were to take them without blemish, no imperfections, no spots, no defects, and within the first year. So they were a young lamb. Now, this would bring to question, why does the lamb have to be spotless? This is what God requires. A perfect sacrifice. See, Jesus, he is our perfect sacrifice. He is that perfect one. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember when Jesus was before many judges who would try him, many times he would stay silent. And they would say, why don't you say things? But still, he submitted to the will of the Father. He could have revealed his glory to them. He could have vaporized them all. But Jesus went for you, silent. In John 1, verse 29, it says, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John, his cousin, his relative, knew who Jesus was. In Hebrews 4.19, the scripture says that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. In Hebrews 7, verse 26, it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, 
separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. This is our perfect Jesus. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, this is all a foreshadowing of things to come. When you look at the Old Testament, we see Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God and just as commanded when he has the blade over his son's body, suddenly the angel calls out to Abraham, says, Abraham, do not harm the boy. And then as Abraham lifts his eyes, he looks up and behold, there's a ram caught in the thicket of bushes. And Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. Even in the scripture, Abraham said, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Through the scriptures, we see there was a sacrifice for his son, Isaac. There was a sacrifice for the household here in Egypt that we're reading about. There was a sacrifice later for the nation of Israel. And eventually there would be a sacrifice given for the world that lamb. In the book of Revelation, John, the revelator, he hears a voice, an angel cry out, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks, and when he's expecting perhaps to see this amazing lion, this king, he sees a lamb Wounded. This is our king. And it was because of God's love that he did this. Back in Exodus 12, verse 6, it says, Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. See, from this verse, in that same manner, the Israelites, they're going to continue this Passover every year. They would begin their sacrifices at the ninth hour, traditionally. That's 3 p.m. And these sacrifices would continue until 5 p.m. But do you know what Matthew's gospel says concerning the ninth hour? In Matthew 27, verse 46, The scripture says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the ninth hour. In that moment of darkness, when light fled the earth, Jesus, the Messiah, hanging on the cross, had every sin placed upon him. From the darkest, cruelest of sins to those little white lies we say aren't really harmful, everything was placed upon Jesus in that moment. Jesus, the purest form of man, God, 100% God, 100% man, 
then had the shame of all the sins just placed upon him and he could cry out at that moment, God, where are you? There was a separation. Jesus was taking upon our sins. We know that's not the end of the story. In verse 7 of Exodus, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. See, Moses is commanding them now how they are to apply this blood, this blood from the lamb on the doorposts. So that's each side and the lintel, which was above giving the sign of the cross. This is now going to be that foreshadowing of what Jesus would endure. If you are taking notes tonight concerning the blood, I have five points of what the blood does in the life of a believer. Number one, the blood makes atonement. The blood makes atonement. That word atonement, you could see even in the word itself, it's at one mint, meaning to be with God. Now, there are two meanings for the word atonement. There's the Old Testament meaning for the word atonement, and there's the New Testament meaning for the word atonement. And there are two different definitions and two different words, the Hebrew and the Greek. The Old Testament was the word kofar, for atonement. And that was a covering of the sin, meaning that the blood of the animal sacrifice would cover the sins of the saints of the Old Testament. But the New Testament meaning is a removal of the sins, to remove the sins far as the east is from the west. And that is what Jesus brought to our lives. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You see, this life that the lamb had was then sacrificed and its blood is poured out and placed on the door of the houses as a sign that this household has taken upon itself the very life of the lamb. And may that be true of you tonight, believer. May you have the blood of Jesus, his life on your heart, on your household, on your family. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, it says, Under the old systems, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds, so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God 
as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. You see, the blood, it gives us atonement, calls us to God. The old ways of of animal sacrifice, Christ did away with. Because he was that perfect sacrifice, his blood, it calls us into salvation. Secondly, the blood purifies. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Again, in 1 John 1, 7, it says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, Christian, you, if you're listening and you are worried that you've committed, first of all, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you have that worry, that conviction, let me assure you that that tells me that there is a conviction in you, that the Holy Spirit is with you, calling you to Jesus, so you haven't committed that sin. Now, therefore, all sins, no matter how deep, no matter how dark they are, how evil, how wicked, the blood cleanses us from them. Now, some might even think that's not fair. It's not fair that the murderer, the child molester, can in his last moment ask Jesus for forgiveness. But you see, we're not God. And we're not the judges of the soul. And if any of us were to be put in comparison to holiness, we're all guilty of sin. All of us need to have the blood placed upon our lives. Thirdly, the blood brings promise. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says when he has his 12 disciples with him on the Last Supper, it says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And the key word I have underlined in my Bible is for the new covenant. That word covenant, it means promise. The new promise that God is giving us, that because Jesus died on the cross, went into the belly of the earth, and then was resurrected, we now get to enter into eternity with God when we simply believe when we are obedient to him, when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Fourthly, the blood 
overcomes the enemy. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, John is seeing the witnesses, the the true believers. And it says, and they overcame him, being the devil, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You see, the blood of the lamb, that's Jesus's life. It gives us that overcoming power in spiritual warfare. It gives us victory that we are more than conquerors through Christ. In older days, they would say to plead the blood in your life. Meaning like to beg, to ask for the blood of Christ onto a situation of your life. Perhaps there is trials in your household. Perhaps your your son or your daughter is lost. Perhaps there's spiritual warfare going on in relationships. Perhaps the the finances aren't there. Perhaps the, the workplace is full of turmoil. Would you plead the blood over it? Ask Jesus to give you his life power to overcome and conquer in that situation. And if that means you need to go outside of your son or daughter's room and pray over their door. If that means you need to stop what you're doing and get away from from people and to just beg for Jesus to intervene in that, your life, then by all means, may we take it seriously. Fifthly, and my last point, The blood brings us nearer. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Perhaps you feel distant from God, from his presence, from the Holy Spirit. Christ Jesus, his blood, We are brought near to God. The Bible teaches us to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. God is omnipresent. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But may we as believers in faith be more open to his love, his life in our lives. Again, in Exodus, continuing on in chapter 12, verse 8, it says, Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. So this is symbolic here of the fire of the Lord. This literally made the lamb good for the Israelites to eat. And also was a a fast way for them to eat in haste because they would need to be ready to leave out of Egypt rapidly. And the same goes for the unleavened bread. By not adding leaven, it was made quickly. And leaven in the word is always a symbol of sin throughout the Bible. 
The bitter herbs were symbolic of the bitterness that the Egyptians endured throughout Egypt. In verse 9, Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. See, this is the all-consuming fire of the Lord now. This was a sacrifice entirely and wholly given to God, completely consecrated to him. This is a symbol of what Jesus was going to be. In verse 11, And thus you shall eat it, with the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And I'm reminded, I love that phrase that it's the Lord's Passover. It's not my Passover. It's the Lord's. He does the work. He passes over. God is preparing them. In verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. See, this striking was against the very gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And God is showing himself to the Egyptians. Pharaoh, earlier in our text, went to Moses and said, I do not know the Lord your God. But now after these 10 plagues, he surely will know the Lord Jehovah. And when the Lord strikes his firstborn son, Pharaoh will know. But God, keep in mind, will also strike his only begotten son, Jesus on the cross. In verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So this is going to be a a tradition that's going to be passed on to every following generation. Something that you're going to note as you read uh, the Israelites and their journey out, out of Egypt and into the wilderness and eventually into Israel is that first generation, after seeing the plagues, after seeing the Lord take them out of Egypt, they stayed close to the Lord. Though they falter in the wilderness, They knew uh, of the God who gets them into the promised land. But later on, the second generation, the third generation, every time they got a little bit further from this instance, they began to lose their faith a bit. Until eventually they, they fall into idolatry. And then the Lord would bring later on a, a nation to chasten the Israelites. And then when the Israelites returned to God, 
that generation then knows that God rescued them. And we see a cycle in this. So may we be understanding of the times that we're living in today, Christian, believer. We are witnessing a nation that we are currently living in turning away from the Lord. You study when prayer was taken out of school. You study when the Ten Commandments was taken out of school. We are that generation that is turning against the Lord. So we pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our church. We pray for our family. We pray for our loved ones. And may we remind our children who God is. You see, instead of Santa Claus being taught to these Israelite children, flying over them, the father was telling them that the Lord was going to send a destroyer to fly over them. The, The destroyer which would kill every firstborn. And this would bring fear into the life of a child. Perhaps that little Israelite boy would say, Dad, did you, did you put enough blood on, on the door? And the father w- would tell him, Son, I've applied the blood. It's enough. Perhaps that child would ask the father, Father, h- how does the blood protect us? And that dad would tell his son or daughter, We've applied it in faith. We believe that our God is going to protect us, not because we've seen, but because we have faith in God. Now, I don't fully understand God's methods, all his ways of grace, and that's where faith comes in. You see, the intellectual, even in myself, can strive to prove God to be true and and 100%. But there is that step of faith I still have to take to believe that God is who he says he is. And God hasn't asked me to fully, completely understand all the theologies that he gives us as truth. He's asked me to accept it by faith. Now, perhaps you're struggling with that. May you, as a child, go to your heavenly Father in full belief. Jesus said, let the children come to me. And he said that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they have faith like these. This is the type of faith that we need in our lives. Faith that takes God at his word, that recognizes his son as savior, that is obedient to him. In verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. 
No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So again here, we have leaven that they were supposed to stay away from and putting leaven in their bread. And it's that symbol of sin. And then Jesus, even God himself, institutes the Sabbath day, a day of rest. And I'm reminded to stay away from sin. I'm reminded to focus on the Lord on your Sabbath day, to have those times of rest. We need rest. We need to be able to stop all the busyness of life and just focus on what the Lord has for us, on honoring him, giving praise to him. I think that in our busy life, uh, I bet you if there was a survey done of people who spent just one day a week on just focusing on the Lord. How their stress levels would be so much smaller than those probably in that report that would not, but just be busy every seven days. I think it's healthy. I think God intended that and he works supernaturally through the natural. Again, in Exodus 7, verse 17, it says, So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person, shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. This topic is picked up in the New Testament. Paul would write to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. He will say, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. See that leaven, it it was a yeast. And they used this to make the, the dough of the bread rise. And Paul was saying, if you put a little bit of leaven in that bread, the whole dough begins to become a lump. It rises. Again, when immorality defiled the Corinthian church, Paul would write to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, we need to purge out 
that sin in our life. That sin which so easily ensnares us. It's destroying us spiritually. See, sin will keep you from the Bible. And it's the Bible that will keep you from sin. Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. One of the seven I am statements of Christ. He said, eat of my flesh and you'll never be hungry. And so many people were like, oh, geez, this guy's a cannibal. And they ran away. They were fearful. But his disciples who were understanding what Jesus truly meant was saying, take on the life of Christ. Christ whose body was broken. When Jesus has that, that Passover feast with his 12 disciples, he says, this is my body broken for you. And he breaks the bread and passes it to them. As often as you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. The symbol of Jesus' body being broken on the cross for us. As I read this today, I many times going through the scriptures just struck with the emotion of, of Christ dying for my sins. Dying for the sins of the world. How undeserving and worthless I am. Yet he loves me and he loves you. And he died for your sins and wants you to be set free out of the bonds of the world of the Egypt in your life. And he's calling you to repentance and obedience. May we take on that overcoming blood of Jesus. Continuing in verse 21 of Exodus. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. See, what I see here is there was a time when they had to be prepared and ready. They're not able to go out until God had prepared them. I'm reminded too that we must be ready. You remember that there's a parable that Jesus gives of the young virgins, the, the women who had their, their lamps, and those who had oil in their lamps and their wicks trimmed, they were ready to go into the wedding feast. But those who did not have oil, they had to go out elsewhere and look for oil. And by the time they came back, it was too late. The wedding had already started and they were unable to go in. And it was a symbol of what it means to have salvation in your life. There's gonna come an appointed time for everyone that death knocks on their door. Will we be ready? And there is gonna be a generation the Bible teaches that will not see death. 
referring to the rapture of the church. And when that rapture happens, when that trumpet is blown and we are taken in a moment in a twinkling of an eye into the presence of the Lord, there's going to be people who are here on this earth who know the truth, but were not obedient to Christ. It says they're going to be gnashing in their teeth, saying, why I knew the truth, why didn't I accept the blood of Christ in my life? May we be ready. In verse 23 of Exodus, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and strike you. Many times you'll hear people say the the angel of death. And the Bible simply calls him the destroyer. In verse 24, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. You see, there was an obedience that had to take place. They had to be obedient by faith, killing this lamb, and then observing this Passover to come for generations. You see, God passes over us still. For those who were disobedient, the Egyptians, there was judgment. But when we have the blood of Christ on our life, God will not judge us. He will not condemn us. We are set free from sin. We get to walk with him to live that purpose-filled life. And this is for those who abide. You see, it was to be on your household and you were to abide in the blood. Remember what Jesus said about abiding? He said, abide in me and let my words abide in you. And if any man does not abide in me, he is cut off like a branch. He withers and dies and men gather them and throw them into the fire. So Jesus said, abide in me. See, this is how I know that I'm eternally secure. Sometimes you might hear a Christian argue the fact of whether a believer can lose his salvation or not. Well, I truly believe that the Bible teaches us that we have free will. Well, I know the Bible teaches us that we have free will. I also see that the Bible teaches about abiding. And I know that when I abide in Christ, I am eternally secure. And that is what abiding is, that obedience where Jesus is your Lord 
and your savor. He's calling the shots in your life. Look at verse 29 of Exodus. It says, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. See, Pharaoh here is finally broken. For a moment. You're going to see later on how Pharaoh still attacks. But the Lord struck where Pharaoh was, was weak. His household. There was not one dead in every house. Even their livestock, all the firstborn of their livestock was struck by the destroyer. And then in verse 31. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take for your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. This is that final moment for Moses and Aaron where the miraculous God of the heavens and the earth has now moved in Pharaoh's heart and they're hearing the words that they probably at times doubted they would ever hear Pharaoh say of go, serve the Lord as you have said. You see, this is the power of God over the enemy. This is that moment in a believer's life where he, God meets us, gives us victory offers of salvation, gives us a new life where all the, the stress and the heartbreak of sin is done away with, where you can be at peace with God. I could go on more and more about how the Lord touched me as a new believer in my life but you have your testimony as well. And I do want to try to get through this chapter. So look at verse 33. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up and their children and their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot and besides children. Now some scholars estimate that with 600,000 men, when you don't include their wives and their children, 
it's almost two million. This nation coming out of the land of Egypt. And Moses, who couldn't set any of the Egyptians free in his own strength, is now seeing and witnessing God just completely take over this situation and lead all of Israel out of Egypt. In verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, and a great deal of livestock. Now you can underline this, the mixed multitude, because later on we're going to see how this becomes a problem and a snare to the Israelites, that because some of them were Egyptians coming with their idolatrous past, it would influence the Israelites and later on they will lust for the things of Egypt. And we're even going to see a golden calf made that they worship. In verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt this is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout the generations. Now, one thing to note in this portion is that 430 years from the day that God prophesied to Abraham, to Joseph, that they would be in slavery to Egypt, to the day God releases the children of Israel. And I'm reminded that God keeps his word to the very hour, to the very day that his scripture says. God has promises for you, believer. Look at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. And one thing to note when it comes to servantry, this is an occupation that is not the same type of slavery that was under a harsh ruling master, some of what we saw with in America when it first started. But this is a, a type of occupation. Now, later Paul would warn people not to partake in communion were not part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, we read about that, that the believer is only to partake in communion. And in verse 45, a sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And I'm reminded how none of Jesus' bones were broken. 
In verse 48, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. You see, now you could come as if you were a Gentile in that time to the Jewish faith. But before you can do this, there were three things necessary. You had to be baptized, circumcised, and three, you had to partake in the Passover. In verse 49, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. That's all the children of Israel did. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, according to their armies. This is the beginning of the redeeming plan that God has for his children, Israel. I pray that you take it to heart how God is redeeming you. He desires for you to be out of the world, fully consecrated to him. Again, I, I'm excited for this Sunday. I see that the Holy Spirit is lining up the studies on Wednesday night and Sunday morning. We have communion service on Sunday. And pretty soon here, we're going to be celebrating Easter the resurrection of Christ at the end of this month. And what's interesting is, it's actually, I think, April 4th. The same day is Passover for the Jews, April 4th this year. Celebrating the Passover for us, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And may you celebrate that every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, your mercy. I pray, Father, for those who desire and ask for the blood of Jesus in their life, that his life would reign in theirs. If that's you tonight, believer, and there's a situation in your life, that you just are, want Jesus, his life to reign over. I want to pray for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are calling out, asking for the blood in their life. Would you give that to them and would they by faith receive? If that's you tonight, just repeat this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I accept the blood of your Son, Jesus. I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Wash me, cleanse me, fill me with your Holy Spirit. 
Give me power over this trial. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One more song this evening. If you will be joining us online on Sunday and not in person, uh, get your communion ready so that you can partake of communion with us at the end of our, our study. And if you will be joining us, then we're excited to see you on Sunday morning. Let's sing this song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged Be mm-hmm.